Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. My mother told me about this young black guy, Wes Johnson, and I was related to him. This white guy thought there was a courtship going on between Wes Johnson and this white man's wife. So he was put in jail and a mob came. They took him and he was hanged and shot. My great-grandfather, Thomas William Miles Sr., was lynched in 1912 in Shreveport, Louisiana. They accused him of writing some insulting letters to a white woman and arrested him. They didn't have enough evidence, so he was dissolved. But they let him out the back door of the jail, and there was a mob waiting for him. Back then, passing a note to a white woman was enough to get you killed. He was accused of assaulting a white woman. And this group of white people decided they could be judge and jury. So he was shot, but he was kept alive in a doctor's office so that he could be publicly lynched the next day. His lynching was advertised in the Mississippi State Daily News. John Hartfield to be lynched by Ellisville mob at five o'clock. There were 10,000 people who were there to witness the spectacle. While he was hanging from the noose around his neck, they dismembered parts of his body as souvenirs. And the crowd randomly shot around 2,000 bullets into his hanging body. One of the bullets finally clipped the rope. He fell to the ground and they burned him on the spot where he fell. It's a Saturday morning. Grandpa Crawford went to town to sell cotton seed and they offered him 85 cents per unit. It was worth more. He said, give me my damn cotton seed back and was arrested for cursing a white man. About 400 people gathered, taking Grandpa out of the jail. They stabbed him, beat him, tied him to the back of the buggy and drug that around town to the county fairgrounds. They hung him there and riddled his body with 200 bullets. The last thing he said was, I thought I was a good citizen. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, 
we've been looking into vigilante justice, the motivations and consequences of taking the law into our own hands. What you just heard are stories collected by the Equal Justice Initiative from people who are directly connected to the darkest and most prevalent form of vigilante justice in American history, lynching. In the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, there's room for moral debate about the vigilante murder of Ken Rex McElroy in broad daylight. He was a known bully who terrorized the town. He'd shot people and avoided punishment for 19 felony charges before the townsfolk did what many people feel they had to do. But when it comes to the bloody history of racial terror perpetrated against Black Americans by white mobs, there's no gray area. Each and every lynching is a horror and a tragedy revealing of our worst selves. And these lynchings weren't just horrific. They were relentless, and they lasted well into the 1950s. And even today, we see their echoes in continued police violence against unarmed Black men. These lynchings were vigilantism at its most atrocious, and it's worth spending time going through this history to really understand the scope of this atrocity. Kansas City, Missouri. Levi Harrington is accused of killing a police officer. A mob of several hundred hangs him from the Bluff Street Bridge. No one is held accountable. Eatontown, New Jersey. Samuel Mingo Jack Johnson is falsely accused of raping a white woman. A mob of 20 storms the jail and hangs him. A sham trial is held for the lynchers, resulting in their acquittals. No one is held accountable. Franklin, Tennessee. Farmhand Amos Miller is accused of raping a white woman. During his trial, a mob of 40 men enter the courthouse and hang him from the railings of the courthouse balcony. No one is held accountable. Omaha, Nebraska. Joe Coe is accused of assault by a five-year-old white girl. The next day, a mob of a thousand beats Coe and drags him through the streets, then hangs him from a streetcar wire. Omaha's mayor condemns the lynching, but no one is held accountable. Paris, Texas. Handyman Henry Smith is accused of murdering the three-year-old daughter of a cop. A mob of 5,000 takes him to a scaffold, tortures him with hot irons, and gouges out his eyes. They pour hot oil on him and burn him alive. No one is held accountable. I could go on and on. Between 1877 and 1950, more than 4,000 Black people were lynched in the southern U.S. And though some were shot, some burned, some drowned, and many hanged, the most common factor is our failure to hold these vigilante mobs accountable. That failure has also defined our attitude towards this dark history. So few of us are taught about it in school, and instead— we're often given a simplistic and false notion that racial terror ended with legal slavery in 1865. 
The Equal Justice Initiative is trying to correct that failure. Brian Stevenson, who runs the EJI, is an author, defense attorney, and advocate for criminal justice reform. He's also one of my personal heroes. He points out that contemporary problems with our criminal justice system, like police violence and excessive punishment, cannot be understood without looking at our history of racial violence. He spoke to this at the dedication of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Slavery in America was violent, traumatizing, and tragic. It lasted for over two centuries, creating a wound that has not healed. After emancipation, Black people were re-enslaved through Jim Crow laws, disenfranchised and unprotected by the rule of law. But nothing maintained racial inequality more than lynching. We've been silent about lynching for too long. It's time to end the silence, to memorialize those who died, who fled, who feared the terror our nation tolerated. Only by acknowledging the truth of our past can we have hope for our future. Stevenson was inspired by the way the Germans and South Africans memorialized their own national tragedies. You cannot visit Berlin or Johannesburg without being made aware, through memorials and monuments, of the horrors of the Holocaust and apartheid. That has not been the case in the U.S. with our history of lynching. And it led Stevenson to found the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is built near the site of the former Montgomery, Alabama slave market. It is a sobering and imposing structure containing 805 hanging steel coffins, one for every county where documented lynchings took place. It's an important step in coming to terms with our past, but it is much closer to a first step than a last step. It's easy to imagine that if we were around in the 1880s, the 1930s, the 1950s, we'd be protesting the unjust treatment of Black citizens rather than joining in the mobs that ripped them apart. It's harder to admit that we have the potential for mob violence within us, that if our neighbors are clamoring at the scaffold, we might join in too. Vigilante mobs are no longer gathering by the thousands to string up accused Black people. Law and order has, for the most part, triumphed over the lawless violence that defined this era of racial terror. But racial injustice hasn't just disappeared. It has become incorporated into our criminal justice system. Two white men came and got me, falsely accused me. It was a white mob that prosecuted me, a white judge that sentenced me, a white jury that convicted me. And so, what changed? That's Anthony Ray Hinton, who was wrongly convicted of a double homicide in 1985. He was sentenced to death and spent 28 years on death row until he was exonerated in 2015, the same year I was. His story reminds us that the most common form of vigilante violence in our history is still with us today, if only in a more official uniform. 
they brought it inside and created another way of execution. Went from the tree to the electric chair, from the electric chair to the gurney. When they come get you, they at least try to kill you to jail. And then in some cases, they kill you right there on the spot. Say you had a gun, say you went reaching for a gun. They took off the white robe and put on the black robe. At the end of the journey, they still put you to death. Like Anthony Ray Hinton, the victims of lynching were usually accused of crimes. And the people who lynched them, like the jury who sentenced Hinton to death, believed they were doing something just. Even if the accusations leveled against the victims of lynching were thin excuses to exert power and control, on the grand scale, the individual acts of lynching reinforced racial hierarchy to create a society in which Black people lived in constant fear of violent death. And to the white lynch mobs, that society was a just society. It was a society that had normalized lynching to such a degree that Billie Holiday could write a song comparing lynching victims to fruit, a black body hanging from a rope as common as a peach tree. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree What you're hearing is 23-year-old Malaysia Booker getting beaten and stomped by a mob. April 12, 2019, Dallas, Texas. There had been a minor car accident, a disagreement. But those details feel tangential to a deeper cause. Malaysia was a black transgender woman, and to the mob around her, she was other, less than, worthy of a beating. The attack on the transgender woman drawing condemnation tonight from Dallas leaders. Video of this assault has gone viral. And it just turns into a frenzy. It's just disgraceful. It makes me physically ill. I feel the terror of that victim being surrounded by people that are taunting you and threatening you with physical violence. There's really literally nothing you can do. Malaysia survived the incident with a broken wrist and a concussion. A week later, she had the strength to show up at a rally to speak out against anti-trans violence. This has been a rough week for myself, the transgender community, and also the city of Dallas. This time, I can stand before you, whereas in other scenarios, we are at a memorial. Those are haunting words. For just a month later, on May 18th, Malaysia was found murdered. A fourth transgender woman has been murdered in Dallas. 
At her vigil, Malaysia's friends, family, and supporters gathered to remember her, but also to draw attention to the broader issue that transgender women are being dehumanized and targeted for violence. There is a crisis going on. Transphobia is still high. We have leaders that's not recognizing our humanity. We have someone in office that does not understand that we eat, we sleep, we, I almost said a word, just like them. Malaysia had enough strength to show up after her attack at her rally. She was nervous, she was crying, but what she said was, if I just show up, it will give the people hope. And it gave me hope. In the U.S., trans women of color are disproportionately at risk of being assaulted and killed. I actually did the math. Estimating based on surveys done by the Williams Institute, if Black transgender women suffered homicide at the same rate as the general population, we should expect around seven Black transgender women murdered every year in the U.S. But according to Human Rights Campaign, 2019 has already seen at least 13 Black transgender women fatally shot or killed by other violent means. Judging by this data, Already, they are twice as likely to be killed. And we're only halfway through 2019. And in Dallas alone, three Black transgender women have been murdered in the span of less than a year. This trend hasn't gone unnoticed by transgender activists, like Leslie McMurray, who is based in Dallas, Texas. I caught up with her during Pride. It's been kind of a different sort of pride this time. Um, we feel kind of like we're fighting for our lives. With the Malaysia Booker murder, and then of course, uh, Chanel Lindsay right after. The woman who was interviewing me said, uh, tell me about you know how things have changed for transgender people since the first Stonewall celebration. And I go, well, the first Stonewall celebration wasn't a celebration, it was a riot. Mm. <laughs> you know? uh, it wasn't a party. It wasn't a parade, it was a riot. And so, you know, we need to remember that as we have the, you know, happy, colorful parades, that the history is, you know, people that said enough is enough. Too often, when a Black transgender woman dies a violent death, no one hears about it. But Malaysia's beating and murder has struck a chord. People have asked, well, why Malaysia? Why did it bring national attention? And largely it's because it was captured on video. She was involved in a minor fender bender, and the person whose car she hit supposedly offered $200 to someone that would beat her up. And so somebody took her up on it and just beat the tar out of this poor trans woman. The things that were being said were transphobic and homophobic to where you could say that's a hate crime. But in Texas, we're not covered under the hate crime law. She was beaten by a mob. Uh, it was one guy in particular that took the lead on that, but there was others that kicked her while she was down. And there was a lot of other people around there that were bystanders, but not upstanders. Ellen was shouting, stop it, you know, give her a break, don't do that. So that was just mob violence. It was motivated by hatred and transphobia. I can't say that that was racism because the crowd was pretty much all black, but there's a devaluing of trans lives in a lot of communities, but it's very prominent in the black community where someone who gives up that masculinity 
for a life of femininity is not valued mm. at all. So that was what happened in Malaysia. We all have a deep instinct for in-group supremacy. And for as long as humans have been socially organized, we've been forming hierarchies and ostracizing outgroups and nonconformists. For centuries in the U.S., white majorities expressed their in-group supremacy through the lynching of black people. Looking at the epidemic of violence against trans people today in light of this history reveals the shared psychological factors that lead to mob violence. We need to combat white supremacy, but there's a deeper challenge. Humans are built for in-group, out-group tribalism. We can be provoked by even the most superficial of differences, and that all too often results in violence. On May 18th, Malaysia Booker was murdered. She was shot by a guy who is accused of murdering two other people a short period of time before. On June 12th, investigators arrested 33-year-old Kendra LeVar Lyles, a black cis man, and charged him with Malaysia's murder, as well as with the murders of two others, a woman killed on May 22nd and a man killed on May 23rd. As of this recording, Lyles is also a person of interest in the murder of another black trans woman, Chanel Lindsay, whose body was discovered on June 1st. Just a, a violent guy. Hmm. And I hope he pays uh, the ultimate price. Hmm. Not that it's going to bring Malaysia back, but prosecuting these guys vigorously sends the message that your life has meaning and it has value. As with the history of lynching, the horror of this anti-trans violence transcends any one tragedy. What happened to Malaysia was not unique. Island Nels was walking home from a bar, and there was a couple of black guys who were sitting on a wall, and one of them catcalled Island Nettles, and his friend turned to him and said, hey, that's a dude. And instead of getting on his friend, he got off the wall and he beat Island Nettles to death. He felt that his sexuality or masculinity was being threatened because his friend had pegged Isla Nettles as being transgender. And for her to be beaten to death because this guy was embarrassed, that's the kind of toxic masculinity that Malaysia Booker was dealing with every day of her life. And she was mm. in an economically depressed area, probably didn't have a ton of education. And then on top of that, being black, being female, and being transgender, that girl never had a chance. And by never had a chance... McMurray is not just talking about the threat of violence from transphobic mobs. She's also speaking of a whole host of prejudicial social and institutional norms that make trans people more vulnerable to violence. If you look at the laws, the way that they're being stacked, it's keeping transgender people from participating in society. Laws that allow transgender people to be discriminated against in housing and employment to be turned away from homeless shelters, refused health insurance and medical care. When you stack all of those things together, uh, it causes people to lose hope, but it also causes people outside the transgender community to value our lives less. So if we're killed, it's like, okay, so what's one less? It's hard not to think of Jim Crow laws when you look at all the ways trans people are pushed to the margins of society. But it's not just that devaluation of their lives. It's also that they are painted as threats with very little justification. 
scour the papers. There just aren't stories of transgender people run amok, uh, out hurting people. We just kind of want to be left alone. And when we were being painted as predators during the whole bathroom bill nonsense, which was crazy because there's really never been a case of a transgender woman assaulting anybody in a bathroom ever, but we're being painted as predators. That's the life we live. We know that. We're aware of that. So we just want simple, equal rights as anyone else. But we're getting more and more tired of waiting for those rights to come, and we're becoming more and more willing to fight for them. But what does fighting for them mean? Like Raymond Brochier's and the Lavender Panthers? Would you support that? A kind of LGBTQ vigilantism, fighting back, or even, you know, trying to get justice for yourselves? No. Uh, Mm -hmm. To me, when I fight back, I fight back at the legislature by changing the laws. I fight back at City Hall by getting inclusive policies. Uh, I met with a county commissioner today in the city of Dallas Mm -hmm. to try and get transgender health care included in the Dallas County Health Plan. So that's Mm -hmm. how I fight back. That's my Mm -hmm. vigilantism. Um, Because to me, to go and hunt down people makes me no better than they are. And Mm -hmm. really, everyone deserves to live and have their own happy life. But... I don't understand. I would like to find somebody who's done that to someone and to say, why? Mm-hmm. What, what has this person done? Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Because these girls, they all deserve a chance to live. It can be baffling to think that you don't have to do anything to earn someone's hatred, that they might just hate you for existing. In that sense, Your very being is a wrong that justifies their hate and their violent action against you. To me, vigilanteism is righting a wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe if you were to stretch the definition of it, uh, somebody might think that uh, a transgender person is an abomination before God. She's Mm -hmm. just existing as a black trans woman in America. What happened in Malaysia is kind of like what was happening in the 1950s with the lynchings that went on. It was just pure, good old-fashioned American racism and hatred. Uh, And that's what's going on with the Mm -hmm. trans community. The thing about good old-fashioned hatred is that it's not an individual emotion. It's a group emotion. We're not talking about vendettas or psychological breaking points. We're talking about how in-group tribalism thrives on exclusion. Humans bond with each other by hating outsiders, and that kind of tribal hatred lowers the threshold for vigilante violence. When you're just one of a crowd throwing insults and punches, individual responsibility is lower, and it's a lot easier to see the moral agreement among your peers than it is the moral disagreement of those in the outgroup who are suffering the violence of the mob. When you're with the mob, Hatred can feel like justice. When the mob is against you. You spent the last several weeks of this whole month of pride celebrating your community, talking about dying trans women. How does that feel? It's horrible. Uh, It's saddening. It's demoralizing. But on the other hand, we're getting attention where there wasn't attention before. And so I'm hoping that Malaysia's death can have meaning in that it's shining a light on a problem. And the solutions aren't easy. There are problems of poverty, education, racism, misogyny. 
we need laws to help because one of the things that laws do like that hate crime law was send a message that transgender lives matter that transgender people are important enough not to attack and murder and beat up but we also need to go out and change hearts and minds because when we do that the laws don't matter the pastor who did the eulogy for Malaysia said something that stuck with me he said prejudice rarely survives experience and I mm. thought about that and said you know what that's exactly right prejudice can't survive experience if you get to know mm. me you're not going to hate me I think McMurray is right if you truly get to know someone it's nearly impossible to hate them with the sort of disgust that leads to mob violence against outsiders. The problem is, you can't really sit down and get to know someone as part of a mob. The mob is great at identifying and attacking differences. It gets in the way of finding commonality. And so usually, it's the marginalized members of society who find themselves in the crosshairs of the mob. But not always. Sometimes, privilege can single you out as a more valuable target. That was the case with the only known lynching of a Jewish man in American history. Little Mary Fagan, she went to town one day. She went to the pencil factory to get her weekly pay. She left her home at 11, kissed her mother goodbye. At one time did the poor girl think she was going to die. Atlanta, Georgia, long an agricultural city, was economically transforming in the early 20th century as factories popped up left and right. Women and children began entering the workforce. In April of 1913, 29-year-old Leo Frank, a Cornell-educated Jewish man from New York, was the superintendent of one of those factories, the National Pencil Company. 13-year-old Mary Fagan, the daughter of Georgian tenant farmers, was one of his employees, operating a machine that inserted erasers onto pencil tips. She had come to pick up her wages on Saturday afternoon. She would not leave the building alive. A night watchman found Mary Fagan's body in the basement. She had been raped and strangled with a torn strip of her own petticoat. The murder made national headlines and presented a conundrum to the investigators. Only three men were in the building that day. Leo Frank said he gave Mary Fagan her pay around noon, and that was the last time he saw her. Jim Conley, the sweeper, told another story that Frank had admitted to him that he'd killed the girl after she rejected his advances, and that Frank bribed him to help carry the body to the basement and to put the blame on the night watchman, Newt Lee. They had to choose who to believe, the Jewish superintendent or the black factory sweeper. The police didn't like how Leo Frank acted initially. They felt that he acted a little skittish, and they became very focused on him, even though there were many other people that could have perpetrated the crime. They just honed in on Frank. That's Sandy Berman, archivist and curator for the William Berman Jewish Heritage Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. 
even though a lot of the evidence kind of looked toward Jim Connolly, who was the sweeper at the factory, the police and the prosecutor just dug in their heels and looked toward Frank as the perpetrator of the crime. It was going to become a very high-profile case, the murder of a little girl in a Jewish-owned business in Atlanta. As an educated, affluent Jewish northerner, Frank was an outsider. And as with me, he was suspected based on his behavior around the police and accused of sexual deviancy. Prosecutors argued that Frank was indecent with the young women who worked at the factory. A parade of present and former female factory workers were brought in to testify for both the prosecution and defense to debate Frank's alleged lasciviousness. They brought up at the trial that he had looked into the coat room when the girls were taking off their wraps and their coats. It was something that maybe would not have bothered anybody in the North if your boss looked into the dressing area and said, get a move on, we have to get to work. But here in the South, that was something that just wasn't done. Leo Frank was not liked. But still, given the overwhelming prejudice against African Americans, it's hard to imagine that a jury would believe Jim Conley over Leo Frank. I get that question all the time. Why would they have believed the black man over the white man? Why, why, why? Even though Leo Frank had good attorneys, I think they misread the jury. This was such a heinous crime that they didn't want it to be just another black man who did it. The prosecutor, Hugh Dorsey, really needed at this point in his career a big victory. And honestly, prosecuting a black man in Georgia for a heinous crime was not going to give him the publicity that he wanted. After Frank's arrest, a local pastor proclaimed to his flock, Thank God we finally have a defendant worthy to pay for this crime. Not just some Negro sweeper, but a rich Yankee Jew. Leo Frank's privilege didn't help him. It hurt him. But this is still white supremacy in operation, in that the prosecution and the public discounted the value of a Black perpetrator. Frank was more valuable to burn. Prejudices and stereotypes were part of the defense and the prosecution. Uh, The defense would say that Blacks are sly and cunning, whereas the prosecution used the stereotype that how could he possibly make up this story? African-Americans are stupid. If this didn't really happen, he couldn't make it up. So you had both of those kinds of stereotypes playing out at the trial. Wow, that's ugly. The jury wasn't just hearing prejudicial arguments from the lawyers, but also far less subtle arguments from the mob. There was no air conditioning. The trial was in July and August of 1913. The windows were open. The jurors could hear the crowd and the mob outside the windows. Some reports claim the mobs outside were yelling, get the Jew, kill the Jew. Even the jury feared they might be lynched if they didn't convict Leo Frank. If Leo was found innocent, the 
judge was so afraid that something would happen to him that they didn't allow him to come and hear the verdict. He was told the verdict after the fact. Part of the reason the public was so fired up against Frank was because of how the case was being portrayed in the media. It was a media circus. It was the first sensational trial of the 20th century. The South was sick and tired of the North becoming involved in their issues. And when it became a national media circus, they dug in their heels. The fact that the New York Times became involved really set a lot of people off. One paper, the Jeffersonian, it was owned by Tom Watson, who was a anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish populist politician, and he called for the lynching of Leo Frank in, in one particular issue. It accused the Frank case of being corrupted by Northern influence, which was synonymous for Jewish influence. Frank was convicted and sentenced to death. The judge at his trial, Judge Roan, is on record saying, I am not thoroughly convinced that Frank is guilty or innocent, but I do not have to be convinced. The jury was convinced. Frank's attorneys appealed over and over, without any luck, eventually winding up at the Supreme Court, where Frank lost in a seven to two decision. Dissenting Judge Holmes wrote, It is our duty to declare lynch law as little valid when practiced by a regularly drawn jury as when administered by one elected by a mob intent on death. Meaning, the jury had not delivered Frank's death sentence based on an impartial, objective examination of the evidence, but out of a desire for blood. Eventually, Frank's pardon petition ended up on Governor John Slayton's desk. He was close to leaving office and had ready excuses at hand to stay out of the matter and leave it to his successor. But instead, he revisited the crime scene, heard arguments for and against Frank's guilt, and reviewed over 10,000 documents, including a letter that Judge Roan wrote to him before he died asking Slayton to correct his mistake. He knew a decision to commute Frank's sentence would make him unpopular, and perhaps even be futile. His predecessor, former Governor Joseph Brown, warned him, if your excellency wishes to invoke lynch law in Georgia and destroy trial by jury, the way to do it is by retrying this case and reversing all the courts. What's fascinating here is that although Governor Slayton was perfectly within his legal right to commute Frank's sentence, many viewed this act as a vigilante perversion of official justice. One man violating the will of the jury, the will of the people. And the people noticed. The mob threatened to attack Governor Slayton at his home. He received at least a thousand death threats. Meanwhile, journalist Tom Watson was calling for Frank's lynching, writing, Lynch law is a good sign. It shows that a sense of justice lives among the people.
Many of the top citizens of Marietta, where Mary Fagan was from, felt that the sentence of death was the right sentence and should be carried out and decided to take the law into their own hands. That night, 25 masked men entered the prison and abducted Leo Frank. They conspired with the trustees of the prison board. They threatened them. There was a typhus epidemic at the prison, and they were going to possibly lose their positions, lose their jobs, and they had enough power to threaten the trustees. And that's why no shots were fired. And they just went to the infirmary behind the warden's office, where Frank was recovering from a knife attack, and just removed him. These conspirators called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan. They included a former governor of Georgia, a former mayor of Marietta, the current mayor of Marietta, and various law enforcement officials. They drove him 175 miles from the prison back to Marietta, where an oak tree and a noose were waiting. A contemporary New York Times article reported that just before Frank was hanged, the leader of the band said, Mr. Frank, we are now going to do what the law said to do, hang you by the neck until you are dead. His body hung there for hours as people took photographs and tore off pieces of his clothing as souvenirs. At the Bremen Museum, we have a piece of the tree and pieces of the rope and multiple, multiple post views that were taken after the lynching. Someone attempted to mutilate the body and he was then cut down and taken back into Atlanta where he was viewed at a funeral home before the family could collect his body. In many ways, The mob that lynched Leo Frank was atypical of the mobs that terrorized Black people throughout the South. But Leo Frank was atypical as a victim of lynching. It was just such an anomaly for a pretty affluent, well-educated, white Jewish man to be lynched. And yet... The horror of the Frank case and the horror of all of these lynchings in the South is that the mob is a pervasive force in our society. It takes courageous individuals who can stand up to the mob. And there has to be a voice that will stand up because this mob mentality can take over and it has taken over at multiple times in our history. The Red Scare, McCarthyism, anti-Semitism, and of course, Jim Crow and, and racism. We have to protect ourselves against that. You have to look at history and old cases to understand that it can happen again. I mean, look at Germany in the 1930s. To this day, there's heated debate over whether the evidence points to Leo Frank's guilt or to Jim Conley's. There are websites and databases dedicated to vilifying Frank, though many experts think he was entirely innocent. 
certain people, even looking at the preponderance of evidence, which clearly points to Leo's innocence, they're never going to believe it because there's always that aspect of then why was he convicted? You know, why he had a jury, he had a trial, you know, he had good attorneys. Why was he convicted if he was innocent? People say the same thing about me. Mary Fagan had three post-mortems after she was murdered, and all of that evidence has disappeared. I am sure that if those photographs and those autopsies could be found, then maybe it could be proven once and for all that Leo did not do it and Jim Connolly did. But of course, there are always going to be people who say that, that that's not how it happened. In 1986, the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles gave Leo Frank a posthumous pardon. But legal pardons, acquittals, and exonerations don't always change people's minds. Is that still a thing in Atlanta? People saying that Leo Frank's a cold-blooded murderer? I think some people have dug in their heels. I was going to do an exhibition at the Temple, which was is the oldest congregation here, and the second I walked in, one of the older women whose family hails back to the beginning of the city said, mm. we don't want anything about that Frank case because it really destroyed how the Jewish community felt about itself. And we had a fight to do the exhibition. You know, people were still saying, why do we want to dredge all that up again? Wow. I'm just thinking about how sad, the, I mean, it. It's very sad, um, and it reminds me a lot of, I, I, I'm sorry I keep having flashes to my own experience. Oh, I understand. I mean, um, it must be horrifying and terrifying for you to hear this. Well, and it just doesn't bode well, you know, because <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, how many times have people told me to shut up and disappear and, and go kill myself because no one wants to deal with the case, you know? And if all these years later, 100 years later, people are still saying, you know, shut up, Leo Frank, go just disappear and die. We don't want to think about you. Like, justice is not a question that we want to entertain with you. That is devastating. It's devastating because I still dream about having my own reputation restored. But like Leo Frank, after all these years, there are still plenty of people out there who think I'm a killer and others who just don't want to think about it. The mob is no longer ripping me apart, but there's no inverse mob to put me back together. I have to do that on my own. Because that's not how mobs work. Mobs are fueled by rage. There are no mobs of restraint and restoration. That's what makes mob justice an oxymoron. Justice is the collective system of checks and balances, adversarial arguments, impartial judges, juries of our peers, that counteract our fundamentally tribal and emotional natures. The mob, on the other hand, is a mechanism that removes the burden of trust. You don't have to think about whether or not you are in the right when there's a hundred other people alongside you doing the same thing. What happened to Leo Frank? What happened to Malaysia Booker? What happened to thousands of black people throughout the South? Forces us to ask, 
How can we possibly trust ourselves when those before us have had such twisted concepts of justice, have felt hatred as righteousness, have thought an oak tree superior to a jury box? It's why we leave questions of right and wrong up to the consensus of the law. We can't trust ourselves to individually know, in each and every case, what the right thing to do is. Well, most of us. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, we'll be looking at those vigilantes who somehow trust their own judgment enough to put on a cape and fight crime. Are they delusional? Are they heroes? And what do they reveal about our darkest and our brightest desires? This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at sundancetv.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.